love is uh, supposed to be one of the defining characteristics of the church. Now, I think love is something that everybody knows is important. You know, the world knows it's important too. Um, the world accepts the notion that love is important. However, what the world focuses on primarily is not on how to love, but usually how to find love. Uh, the world's understanding is that love is not something you do, it's something that you find, right? Like, like loose change in your pocket, you know, like seashells at the beach. It's, uh, it's, it's either random, something that just happens, or it's fate, something that the universe has conspired to bring together. But that's love. Right and, and love is governed by circumstances that either allow us to hang on to that love or to fall out of it. Uh, the Bible, however, contrastingly, does not present love in this way. Love isn't primarily something that you discover, but it's something that you decide. You can love or you cannot love, but it's your choice to do so. And this kind of love that the Bible talks about uh, is that that's the love that we talk about when we say that love is meant to be a defining characteristic of the church. Uh, the question is for us, I think, and a lot of us know that, but I think the question becomes how can we grow in that love? Or sometimes it's even how do we know that we have that love or that we know that love? that kind of love. And so uh, that's what we're going to be talking about today, um, kind of these three things about love. And I'll, I'll give you these kind of three words just so you can track. But uh, the center, you know, the center of love, the characteristic of love, and the call of love, that's what we'll be talking about today. And so if you guys have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them up to the book of First John, First John chapter 3. First um, John chapter three sixteen, not John three sixteen, but First John three sixteen um, through eighteen, and really we're going to look. I mean, we'll look at some other verses, but this will be our main text. Just these three verses here. First John three sixteen through eighteen. If you don't have your Bibles, you can just look up at the screen. And this is God's word, and it says, "By this we know love that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers." But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Now, First John is really all about love. Like, love is one of the main themes that John talks about in this, you know, in this letter, in this book. Um... You know, why love matters, what love is, how can we step into it? And he starts this passage here with something interesting. He says, by this we know love. So if we were to ask the question, how do we know what love is? Right? How do we know what love is? He says it right there. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. You know, so simply... The, the first point here, the center, what is the center of love, real love, true love as the Bible defines it? The center of love must be the gospel. 
must be really, that's, that's another way of just saying must be Jesus Christ himself, must be Christ, right? And John is certainly thinking about, you know, John wrote John and 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. So, you know, obvious, I mean, you know, his name's John. Well, it's all the same person, I should just say, because there's a bunch of Johns. You know, so, so there's John, and then there's 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And in John, John 15, he says, by, uh, or this is Jesus, but he's, Jesus is saying, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So how do we know how to love one another? Or how do we know what's the right definition of whether or not we're loving one another? It is, are we following the example of Christ? Love one another as I have loved you. And then he says in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. Has anyone ever asked you the question, like, how do I know if I love somebody? You know, or how do I know if I'm in love with somebody? I've gotten this kind of question Many times, you know, in my life, maybe it's because I'm a pastor, but people, you know, they'll be in a relationship or something and they'll be like, oh, look, how do I know? Am I in love? Like, how do you know? How did you know? Uh, well, you know, when I would preach at like college campuses, college kids are always like, how did you, oh, like, how did you meet your wife? Like, what did you, you know, what did you do? And like, what was your, you know, how did you start dating? And how did you know? Like, how did you know? That kind of question comes up a lot. You know, how did you how did you know? How do you know if you love somebody? How do you know what love is? And that's, that's based on the worldly paradigm of love, right? How do you know if you're in love? But the biblical paradigm is, how do you know what love is? It's, just, it's Jesus. Jesus is love. Jesus has demonstrated what love is on the cross. The example of Christ is what teaches us Love. John says as much in his own letter later on, John 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now, Christ is the center of love. Here's what that, here's an implication of what that means. You can't truly grow in love without growing in Christ. Now, you can grow in some false sense of love. You can grow in your own definition of love, or you can grow in the world's definition of love. But you can't grow in true self-sacrificial love, the kind of love where you'll lay down your life to give of another person without growing in the gospel. Now, it's important that we know that and that we remember that. Um, you know, there's this parable. I've, ref I've referenced this parable before, you know, about like three, the three blind men and the elephant, right? And one, one the, so it's these three blind guys, and one guy feels the tail, you know, or, or let's say the trunk. One guy feels the trunk, and he's like, oh, it's a, it's, it's a snake. Or maybe the tail is a better, a, he feels the tail. The trunk will be big, right? He feels the tail, and he says, oh, it's a, it's a snake, right? And one guy feels a tusk, and he says, oh, it's a spear. And one guy just feels the body of the elephant, and he says, it's a wall. Because they can only each feel one part of the elephant, and they think, oh, that's what, that's what this is. It's, it's that. Of course, it's an elephant. Now, the only thing that's problematic in the story is if each blind man thinks that he knows everything, right? So the story is not problematic if the three guys all talk to each other, right? And says, oh, I'm, I'm over here and this is what I feel. And I sense that you're over there and you feel something else that's different than what I feel. 
And so if we all talk together, maybe we can figure this out. The problem is that each of them thinks they have the whole picture when they only have a piece of it. And the reason I bring this up is because we have to recognize this truth. None of us has a perfect view of love, and yet each of us thinks we do. None of us really knows fully what love should 100% look like. But the fact remains, all of us think we do, though. Right? You don't have a gap in your brain where your definition of love is incomplete. No, you have a complete definition in your brain. You have an idea of what you think it's supposed to look like, what parental love should look like, what friendship is supposed to look like, what you know, a, a husband or a wife is supposed to, what that kind of love is supposed to look like. You have an idea of what that's supposed to be. The problem arises when you think that that's the right idea, that you alone have the right idea. It's something I have to remind myself all the time. You know, you know, Boomy and I, we got in a fight a couple days ago. And I, I don't know, I came home. I was, she was tired. She was watching the kids. I came home. I said something probably stupid, you know, and then she got upset about it and she said something, you know, mean. And then so we're in this fight, right? And so, you know, we didn't even, you know, Friday night we're just fighting, you know, super passive aggressively and we're just fighting in silence, right? Like, uh, you know, we're saying things around each other and the kids are there. So we don't like fighting in front of the kids. So we're kind of like, you know, just kind of manage and get through the day. Um, even Saturday morning, by the way, you know, some of you guys posted some stuff on social media, but Micah, he started soccer. But even there, when we were there, we hadn't resolved this fight. So we're there and, you know, we're meeting other parents and stuff. We're like, oh, hey, hi, nice to meet you. She's like, who cares? Like, you know, like in my <laughs> deep down inside, I'm like upset, right? So we're, we're just, we're in this situation. And so Saturday afterwards in the morning, we start, we're trying to resolve this fight. So we start talking about it. And what ends up happening is what usually happens um, I say what I think, and she says what she thinks, and we just go back and forth and just are fighting. You know, and I think I'm right, and she thinks she's right, and that's it. You know, so at some point, if, if you've done, you know, for those of you who've done, uh, you know, for the married people who did counseling with me, you know, we do this thing called intentional empathetic listening, and it's a, it's a device that we use. It's a communication device that we use so that we can express ourselves better. Now, so me, being me and a pastor, is like I say, okay, let's do the thing. Let's do the intentional empathetic listening, right? Like, let's, and we know it well enough. We don't need the papers and stuff, right? Now, let me just say, okay, Boomy hates it, and I also hate it. Okay, it's like, I don't want to do it because I think I'm right and she thinks she's right and we're fighting. And I would rather just win this fight. I would rather just have her say that she's wrong and that I was right and that I won. You know, that's, that's, that's my competitiveness. That's my humanness. That's what I want. But the reason that I say, like, let's do it, even though I don't want to do it, like, I really, at this moment, when we were in this fight, I felt like I don't want to do this. But we have to do something because clearly you think you're right and I think I'm right. And these things can't, we can't, this can't all be right. You know, probably we're both wrong, but neither of us wants to admit it. So we need something else, like a third device that is going to help us realize that we're both wrong. 
And that's what the that's what the mechanism does. That's what it helps us to realize the ways in which we've hurt each other. And I bring this up because I just want you to know, like, your picture of love is somewhat wrong. Like, we have to continuously go back to the Bible. We have to continuously go back to the gospel to be corrected. Right? When I, when I think about the way that I was in my 20s and the stupid things that I thought, I now think, oh, man, I was so foolish then. But when I'm in my 40s, I'll think the same thing about now. And when I'm in my 50s, I'll think the same thing about my 40s. I think for many of us, and that's fine. Like, I hope, in fact, that that is the case. Because if it's not the case, it means I have ceased to grow. I have ceased to change. I'm no longer able to recognize the mistakes of my past. And if we ever think, I'm going to arrive at a level where now I have figured out love to the point where I, know no, I no longer need to consult the gospel. I no longer need to consult God or any other person, people around me. I've just figured it out, and I know what I'm doing. Then we'll be really bad at love. And we certainly won't be growing in love in the way that the Bible presents us, uh, presents the way that we should be growing. We have to recognize the love that Christ has demonstrated for us on the cross. One of the things that happens every single time we go there, and, you know, so Bumi and I, we always, Bumi and I, we, and we resolve this fight. You know, we're not fighting right now. You know, we're all reconciled and everything. And, you know, we pray at the end, and we think about, you know, we, we confess our sins to God, right? And one of the things that that always does, this is why confession is so important, okay? Confession grows you in humility. Trying to be humble does not grow you in humility. It actually makes you more prideful, usually, because this is what happens. You say, oh, I'm going to try to be more humble, right? And every single time you do something that elicits, you know, humility, like, oh, I didn't say, I could have said something, but I didn't say something in that moment. Good job, me. You know, like, good job. You were patient. You held your tongue. Then you become prideful about that, right? Because you're like, I'm doing a good job of being humble. That makes you prideful. Do you know what actually makes you humble? When you confess, like, this guy cut me off the other day, and I wanted to ram him with my car, you know? Like, this, this I'm sharing something real. This actually happened to me. This guy, like, cut me off. I was so mad. I started honking my horn. I was, like, yelling at him through the car. Micah's in the back. Micah sometimes in the car. He goes, like, he'll, he'll be playing with his little whatever toy, and he'll go, like, you stupid idiot. Like, he'll say that. Because he's copying me. Because sometimes when people cut me off, I get so mad. I'm like, oh, you idiot. Like, what are you doing, right? Like, why are you driving like that? And sometimes, Micah, he won't repeat me exactly because he doesn't know what I'm saying. But he'll be like, you stuff. You know, like, he'll say something similar. And I'll be like, oh, shoot. Like, I better stop saying that. Because if I keep saying that, he's going to learn it and he's going to start doing it. Like, see, me sharing that, I don't look good in that story. That makes you humble, right? Because you're like, oh, I'm... I'm an imperfect person. Like, I make mistakes, and I do foolish things. That's an unavoidable humility. When you share your sin with people, you cannot help the perception that's going to change in their minds that you're human, you make mistakes, that you sin. Right? When you share about how you fight, when you share about how you gossip or how you lust or how you do any of the, you look down on someone or you judge or you're not, you know, the person that people think you are, 
when you're real about that, that can't help but make you humble. Humble is, and humility is one of the key components of Christ-like love. We can't love like Christ if we're not humble. And all of that is leaning into the gospel. So that's the, what, what is the center of love? It is, it is Jesus. It is the gospel. Now look at verse 17. It says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Okay, so let's just simply break down this verse. Let's just evaluate ourselves according to the text, and this is a part of what Lent is, right? Do you have the world's goods? Okay, if anyone has the world's goods, do you have the world's goods? Now, I want to remind you of some statistics i rattle these off a lot but if you make $35,000 a year in america 35,000 annual okay that's not that much even i make that much um you're in the top 0.81% of the world so you're the top 1% less you know 0.81% and uh it would take a it would take a laborer in zimbabwe 34 years to earn what you earn in one year. And your monthly, your monthly salary could pay the monthly salaries of 156 doctors in Pakistan. Okay, so do you have the world's goods? Like, do you have things? Do you have enough resources? That's, you know, so if... Anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need. So here's the second question. Do you see your brother in need? Do you see people around you in need? Like, and this is before the question of are you doing anything about it? Because the first question we have to ask is do we, even, do we even notice? Or have we ceased to notice? Do you notice people around you in need? And I don't just mean financial need. I'm not just talking about like a homeless guy on the street or somebody on a corner. I'm talking about even within, and this is talking about the brothers, like within the body, the family of Christianity, do you see people when they are in need, when they have financial need, when they have emotional need, when they have physical need? Do you recognize it? Do you notice it? yet closes his heart against him. Here's the third question. Have you closed your heart against him? So the Starbucks I go to now is um, Harbor and Orange Thorpe. I used to go to a different one. Now I've moved to this one because it's closer to Micah's um, preschool. And this is, there are a lot of homeless people at this Starbucks. Um, this, this corner, this area, there's like a lot of, there are a lot of homeless neighbors there. Um, I've heard like there was a guy who like hit a lady once in the in the in the in the Starbucks and like ran away and like you know the police are there like often you know because people will like do drugs in the bathroom or you know they'll be doing strange things like within the place. Uh, there was like one time a convert these this couple next to me they were having this conversation it was getting like really violent and I was trying to like you know calm them down. And, you know, eventually, I, I think they calmed down, but eventually, like, they left. I don't, I don't know what happened. There's, like, people get stuff stolen. And I've had tons of conversations with people there, like, random conversations. You know, Randy and I meet there, too. So, like, we'll have random conversations with people sometimes. Like, we're trying to talk about ministry and stuff, and guys will just come up to us, start talking about, like, some, like, random songs and stuff and, like, trying to give us stuff. 
Um, I get a ton of, I've, some, I've told some of you this, but I get a ton of tech questions, okay? And if you're not aware of, like, the homeless kind of population nowadays, like, they all got phones and, like, computers and stuff. They're trying to charge their stuff up. But I don't know if it's because I'm Asian or what, but people always ask me, like, hey, do you know what's, like, wrong with my phone? Or can you help me get on this plan? Or, like, this kind of stuff. So I'm doing that kind of stuff a lot. And the thing is, sometimes... I'm very, like, I'll be, I'll be, like, open, and I'll be, like, generous with my time, and I'll be like, yeah, you know, hey, you know, what's going on? And in my brain, I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm like, I'm like, being a Christian, you know, I'm like, living this life. And there's other times where I feel like, dude, like, do you, do you see me? <laughs> like, I got my headphones on. I'm trying to, I'm trying to do something here, okay? And I'm talking to them, and I'm like, you know, I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, cool. You know, I'm like trying to, I'm trying to slowly fade away from this conversation, like as much as I can. Yeah, cool, man. You know, and I'm like kind of, yeah, that's all right. Yeah, hope, hope, hope it goes all right. You know, and there'll be times where I'll like pray, you know, to try to end it. Like, hey, all right, man, let me like, let me pray for you, dude. And I'll pray for them. But afterwards, they'll keep talking, you know, they'll, they're like, yeah. And then also this is happening. This, like, hey, man, but you know, we, we already prayed, <laughs> like, you know. I think that's the it's the close you know and i just feel like i like i'm just confessing like i feel this this sense of well i want to close my heart because that's really the only way to get away like i gotta be like you know what i'm busy and i have things to do and you have to kind of be mean and i'm not saying that because i've told people i've told people hey yeah sorry you know i gotta i got i'm doing this right now but um you know, maybe we can talk next time. Like, I've told people that kind of thing. And that's that's fine. I'm not saying we have to meet every single need to every person. But there are times where that's not really what it is. It's that I'm just sick of this. And I kind of feel like I'm, like, above these people. And I don't, I don't want to have this heart. And you just kind of shut it down. Where it's like, oh, I, I can recognize that this person has need. And I probably have the resources to help them, but I really just don't want to. Like, I want to just shut my heart down. Like, I want to, essentially, it's when we kind of say, like, I want to be selfish, you know, and feel justified in doing that. The character of Christ-like love must be compassion. We must be compassionate. If we're not growing in compassion, we're not growing in the love of Christ. Now, we don't live in a particularly compassionate culture, right? Just look at the Internet. Um, you know, recent research shows that uh, messages with both moral and emotional words are more likely to spread on social media. So if you say something really angry, if you're, like, raging about something, that tends to spread more rapidly. That tends to go viral and um, each moral or emotional word in a tweet, particularly negative ones, increased the likelihood of it being retweeted by 20%. So every single moral or emotional word that you use uh, increases the likelihood of your tweet being retweeted by 20%. That's a lot when you think about every single word, right? So you use five words like that, and it, it's like 100%, you know, the, the likelihood of it being retweeted. Uh, you know, when, this is what one person was quoted as saying. This is an article in CNN, but it said, content that triggers outrage and expresses outrage is much more likely to be shared 
What we've created online is an ecosystem that selects for the most outrageous content paired with a platform where it's easier than ever before to express outrage. So this is kind of, we've created this system where just railing against things is what people are used to. Right? I feel myself adopting that sentiment sometimes where it's like, oh, it's fine. Like all we have to do is just join in this culture of the world to recognize, you know, to call justice essentially um, punishment without compassion. And the thing is, I think one of the things I like about church is like one of the things I like about Sunday is that I don't feel the same sense here. You know, like when I go to church, I don't feel the same sense of like, oh, I have to be guarded and like cynical and I really have to like say negative things. You know, like I have to, I have to kind of like keep my guard up. There's something great. You know, there's something that's comforting. It's weird to go somewhere and not to, you know, and to just kind of be happy to see the people there, you know, to sense that there is compassion, that there's empathy that's really lacking elsewhere. Most, if you go to like your work or something, most people are just thinking about getting the job done. The way that church is supposed to be, and I sense that it is, is that people actually care about each other. That's something that God cares about. That kind of compassion is supposed to be central you know, the part of the characteristic of the love that we experience in Christ. Um, so compassion has always been very important to God. This is in the Old Testament, Zechariah 7. To say to the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited? So he's, he's talking about their religious acts, their fasting. It has to do with some certain historical events that they're mourning. But he's saying, did you really do that for me or did you really do it for yourself? Right? Because And then he's referring to these prophecies before when they were, you know, when the people were doing well, when they were prospering, isn't this what the prophet said about you? So verse 8, it says, And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. In verse 11, but they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. Now that, the, you know, verse 10, the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, and the poor, that's typically, you know, what's, uh, it's kind of, this is what's referenced a lot when God talks about those whom he has compassion for. These are the people essentially that God identifies with. He says, I am the God of you know, he's the he's kind of like the husband to the widow and the father to the fatherless. You know, he's the defender, you know, of the sojourner and kind of the provider of the poor. This is what God says really throughout the Bible. Proverbs 14, 31 uh, essentially says, I'll just paraphrase it, but it says, if you insult the poor, you insult God. Right? Proverbs nineteen seventeen says, if you're giving to the poor, you're giving to God. 
Now, this is, this is significant because God identifies himself as the God of the weakest people in society, right? The most needy people in society. And no other God at that time, no other religion would have any God who would say, I'm the God of the poor. I'm the God of the weak. I'm the God of those who are in need. The gods would be the gods of the king, right? Or the rich people. Those would be the people that God has shown favor on, like the Greek gods or the Roman gods or any other gods from whatever mythological age. Like the gods would always favor those who were in power, but that's not the Christian God. That's not the way that the Christian God operates. He stands with the orphan, the widow, the immigrant, the poor. He says, I'm not the God of the rich and the powerful. I'm the God of the weak and the needy. There's two parts to that. One is, it's okay for us to be weak and needy. In fact, that, that's how God stands with us. Not when we come before him and say, God, look at me. Like, look how good I am. Look at all the things I can do. Right? Jesus says, I, I, I came to call not the righteous, but sinners. You know, it's the sick who need a doctor, not the healthy. That's, that's what we must confess that we are before him. And when we do, he willingly accepts us, receives us, loves us, cares for us, builds us up, restores us refreshes us, renews us. And he enables us to give also to those around us who are also weak and needy. So we can love them and care for them, not just physically and emotionally, but we can lead them to the God who is their defender, who will stand for them and with them. Do you have the world's goods? Do you see your brother in need? Do you close your heart? Or not? Do you exercise compassion? I would encourage you to think about that beyond, you know, I'm, I'm going to move on in a second, but just to, even to, to just do this, like, do you have the, think about the goods that God has given you. Um, try this, write down every way in which you've been blessed. You know, if you're a journaler or something, or if you have notes, just write down everyone, like your family, your parents, your siblings, education, income, if you have a job, if you have a career, you know, things that you own, your phone, your car, you know, your camera, clothes, shoes, food you have access to that you can eat anytime, drink, whatever. And just like write it all down, everything, just to see it, just to do it. Um. You know, my, my expectation is that your capacity for compassion will grow, recognizing that God has given you those things. Here's the final thing. Uh, recognizing the call of love. The call of love. And he says, uh, let me go back to, oops. Oh, you guys tricked me. Okay. <laughs> they were doing it, and I was doing it at the same time. And then we went back. Okay, so... Um, Look at verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. It's simple, but I feel like sometimes these verses just kind of go over our heads. Uh, little children, let us not love in word or talk. And 
the, the implication is let us not love in word or talk only, but also in deed and in truth. Because it's not like words and talk are bad. It's not like if somebody says, I love you, and you'd be like, Psh, words. You know, like, what does that mean? You do something, you know, go, go wash my car. Right? Like, no, that's not, that's not the point. It's like we should, of course, we should love each other in word too, right? Like we should encourage each other and be there for each other. But we can't only do that. Right, he's saying that can't be the only thing that we do, because that kind of that's kind of that's cheap, right? You know, uh, John. Going back to the John 15 passage, what Jesus says is, "This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you." It's not a suggestion. You know, it's not optional. He says, "This is my commandment." In fact, in the Bible, Jesus is asked, "What are the what's the greatest commandment?" And he says. The first greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the greatest commandment in the Bible. It is what we are commanded to do. Christ-like love, like engaging in this kind of love, this kind of gospel-centered, self-sacrificial, compassionate love that is, that's a calling for all Christians. It must be your calling in your life. Your occupation is not, it is not your calling, not your primary calling. It's a calling, but not your primary, it can't be, right? Me being a pastor can't be my primary calling. I wasn't a pastor when I met Jesus. I certainly wasn't a pastor when I was born, and I'm not going to be a pastor forever. I'm not a pastor to everyone, that can't be my primary calling. Your job can't be your primary calling. That can't be the thing that drives you all the time. It can't be your purpose in life, the, the reason for which you exist. But I will always be a Christian, a follower of Jesus. That's not dependent on where I live or who I'm with or what my title is. That is the calling that we have to step into. Let me give you a couple applications in closing. Um, first thing, to kind of step into this kind of Christ-defined love, you know, this self-sacrificial, this compassionate love. Uh, first thing I'd say is this, uh, make margins in your life. And make margins in your life. What we typically do is the opposite. We reduce the margins in our lives. So whenever we have, and what I mean is the extra space that you have, right? What we usually do is if you're going to, let's just think about it like financially. If you're going to buy something, you buy the most expensive one that you can afford. What that is is reducing your margin. Right? So if, you, if you're going to live somewhere, you think, what is the maximum amount of rent or mortgage I can pay? And that's the one that I'm going to get. If you get a car, you're going to get the most expensive one you can afford. Same thing for a phone, same thing for a laptop, same thing for a whatever, shoes, clothes, whatever it is. You're going to get the best one that you can possibly get. And what that does is it reduces your margin. You now have no margin. Right? Same thing with time. Whenever you have free time, you hate it. Right? So what you want to do is you want to fill it up. As fast as possible. 
a full schedule makes most of us. Now, I know there are, there are a few of us who like to just do nothing and sit at home, but usually then that is what you filled your time up with and you don't want to fill it with anything else and you know that that's there. So you don't like what I'm saying is leave space in your life to be able to, if someone were to say, hey, like, can you, you want to grab dinner like on Thursday? You're not going to say, no, I can't. And I'll see you in July. Right? Like, because that's the, that's the next available date that I have. You know, like, I don't know if you realize it, but that doesn't make people feel really loved, you know? When you're like, ah, I mean, I'm super busy, and I'll see you in, like, six months. Maybe, you know, maybe if this other thing falls through, right? Like, I've got something every single day of my life. Yeah, I mean, I know our culture's busy, but we, that, that's not one of the things that we should be adopting, right? Make some margin so that you have five or ten minutes to talk to somebody on the street. You know, if your schedule is so tight that you don't have that kind of time, then you're too busy. You got to say no to some stuff. Right? You have to just just say no. Just say I, no, you know. And not because, like, I have to do something else because I feel like for some of us, the only time we ever say no if something else, is if something else is already scheduled. Just say no. Just be like, no. <laughs> I just prefer not to do that. Like, or I'm just not going to be able to make it. That's fine. Now, I, the, the thing is, I'll just say this right here, but, um, you know, so I, I've, I talked to this guy this past week who's from a ministry called uh, Voice of the Refugees, and it's like a ministry that's very close by, and, you know, it's, you know some of our leadership, like, knows about this stuff, and we're talking with them to see if we can um, build relationships and try to just help them out, and I've, I, you know, I talked to this, uh, the leader there, and um He's like an awesome guy. He's very passionate. But uh, one of the things that he said was he doesn't want his ministry to be one of those kinds where it really it's not designed to be this way where you just kind of drop in and then you feel good because you did something and then you, you know, you're out. Right. And I said, that's great because that's that's not what I want either. I don't want I don't want us to develop into this kind of typical American church where we can drop in and do something nice charitable, feel good about ourselves, and then drop out and go back to our regular lives. You know, because that's not really what it is to be Christian. That's not really exercising this kind of love all the time. So, you know, he's saying, well, it would take this kind of, this kind, more, of a, more of a somewhat ongoing, you know, commitment, like some space in your life. It doesn't mean it's going to take over your life. But I know in, in talking with him, I know that before we can even step into that, we have to be able to cut some things out, right? We got to be able to at least, because if we can't do it right now, like if you can't be like, well, you know, if we can't look at that chart of our lives and, and be able to say definitively, well, this is a very important thing to me and I care about it and I have to make space for it. And then these other things, they feel very urgent. They feel like they're pulling at me, but they're not really important to me. If we can't do that, it's going to be very, very difficult to live any kind of compassionate way toward people in need. Here's the second thing I'd say. This is less um, practical, kind of more of a more of a mindset. But um, practice exercising empathy rather than assigning blame. Okay, practice 
exercising empathy rather than assigning blame. And this is something I've said before, but we are trained to do this in our culture. You know, to want to say who's responsible. You know, who has made this go wrong? Right? And I think often our response to the lack of, even to the lack of compassion in the world, we'll say, well, it's, you know, it's this guy's fault or that guy's fault. You know, it's the, uh, sometimes we'll say, well, it's their fault. They should have made better choices. They should have done things differently. They should have been more responsible. They should have taken care of themselves. It's their parents' fault. They didn't raise them right. They didn't do something right. It's the government's fault. You know, programs are all messed up. It's the president's fault, right? It's the system's fault. And it, it does. It makes us feel better about not doing anything when we're able to point at other people. But the truth is, that's not what God encourages us into, right? It's not our job to step into God's shoes and start giving out judgment, right? Unless God has told you, unless God has delivered to you, unless you're a prophet, you know, and, and God has delivered to you some particular word that you have, then that's not our job. Our job is to exercise compassion where we see it. And one of the ways to do that is to try to empathize with people. Try to think, well, what is it? What are they going through? What is life like from their perspective? You know, what must they be feeling? What must they be, you know, how, how must they be dealing with this situation that they're in? And that positions us to be in a much better place um, to love them. And really, when you think about Jesus, Jesus exercised the ultimate kind of empathy, right? Not just to say, what must my people be feeling? But to say, I'm going to become like my people so that I can know what they're feeling, right? I, wa- I want to know what it is to be limited, right? To not be Essentially, God, I mean, you know, Jesus was the God-man, which is a crazy theological idea, but essentially to become like us. That's what the incarnation is, to step into our world, to walk in our shoes, to be tempted like us, to be hurt like us, to bleed like us, and to die for us. Like, when we know that, when we remember that, I think we're able to, in some small way, be a shadow of that and we experience some incredible joy in life if we are to step into that let's pray together Jesus thank you so much for your incredible love for what your love has accomplished in us God that we can be completely forgiven that we can be completely cleansed that we can have um this joy and this life and this relationship with you because of the cross. And thank you also, Jesus, that you have set this example of love for us. God, we know that we're not perfect in following it. We know we'll never be. And yet, God, we have this teacher, this discipler, this this mentor, God, in you that we can always follow and trust in and look to. I pray, God, that you would give us courage, that you would give us strength, that you would give us 
compassion, Holy Spirit, to know, you know, what you feel and what you sense, and we can act in the way that you would. You know, help us in that, God. We entrust it to you. We thank you so much. We love you, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.